Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and what you'd have us to see from that. And as we start a new book and look at the beginnings of that, we just ask you to lead and guide in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be studying in the book of Matthew. And uh, just a little bit of the history of the book to start with. Uh, as you know, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew is generally considered the second gospel to have been written, with the first one being Mark, Luke being the third one, and John being the, the last one. And the book of Matthew is, the audience of the book of Matthew is Jews. We know that because he talks a lot about the, Jesus being the Messiah and being king. And so, and he... And uh, the book of Matthew will make uh, approximately 60 references to fulfilled prophecies and another additional 40 quotes to the Old Testament. So this book will be quoting the history of the Jews frequently, really pushing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king. And uh, just for information's sake, the book of Mark was generally written to Romans. It emphasizes the humanity and servanthood of Jesus. And the book of Luke was written primarily to the Greeks. It, it uh, shows uh, his culture and the ideas that Jesus has. And then John emphasized the deity of Christ, and he was written to virtually everybody. And it was one of the last books. It was written closer to 70 A.D. And... Uh, was one of the last ones to be written. And let's see, the author of this book is Matthew, the apostle or disciple. He is also at times in the scriptures called Levi. So we just want to bring that out. He, he was a tax collector. We're going to look at Matthew 10. Now Matthew 10 says he's a uh, publican. We're going to look at Mark 5, uh, Mark, uh, chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And starting at verse 13. And he, Jesus, went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a receipt of custom, and said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were, were many, and they followed him. So we see his call to Levi, who is Matthew, and it says that he sat at the seat of uh, receipts of the custom, which meant that he was a tax collector. And tax collectors in that time were, had as bad or worse a reputation as the IRS in our, in our day. And by many Jews... Matthew would have been considered a traitor to, to the Jewish people because who was he collecting taxes for? He was collecting taxes for Rome. And so by many, he would have been considered a traitor to his people. It was a bad enough position just to be a tax collector, but he was collecting not for the Jews, but for Rome. He would have been hated by most people, and Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. Now, he also had a, a man named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Zealot. Judas the Zealot was on the extreme opposite side of Matthew. 
He was all for causing trouble for Rome, and Jesus called people from both sides of the spectrum, you know, politically, to be his disciples. And you could almost imagine the discussions that Matthew and Judas the Zealot would have had <laughs> between each other. And so we bring this out, but when Matthew was called to follow Jesus, and he did, he, cre- he went to and created a feast for him. And we look at who did he call? He called all the people that were his friends, the publicans and the sinners. And publicans was just another name for sinners. <laughs> so he was getting the drag, what the, what the righteous people considered the worst of the worst to, to come to his party that he was throwing for Jesus to talk to. And this is why Jesus did not have a good reputation with all the scribes and Pharisees because he kept meeting with the, the publicans and sinners. He met with the harlots. He, he did everything you weren't supposed to do as a good, righteous Jew. <laughs> all right? And this is something we see even in our day. How many places do, do church people go, well, I can't go hang out with those people. I mean, they might think I'm as bad as them. Well, Yes, we want to be careful sometimes on who we hang out with, you know, to a, to a degree. If you have problems with alcohol or drugs or, or sexual activity, you don't go hang out with people that are doing those kind of activities. But we also don't want to totally reject the world because we, if we reject the world, we have nobody to give the gospel to. And so we want to be very careful about that. God, Jesus set that example of being with those who needed the message. And at one point he told the Pharisees and scribes, you know, I came not to those that are well, but to those that are sick. He was not saying that they were well, but they didn't recognize that they were sick. And if you don't recognize that you're sick or in need of something, you're not going to go seek help. And that's why I I keep going all the time. When we have a sin in our life, if we want to excuse it the way the world does, we're not going to address the issue as a sin. And we see this, you know, with, with all these different diseases out there that are being out there that, you know, alcoholism is the one that really bugs me because God calls being drunk, drunkenness and a sin. The world says, well, you're just, you have alcoholism. You have a, you have a disease. And as long as you're willing to call it a disease, you're not going to treat it as a sin because a disease is nothing you need to get away from. That's something you have no control over. And we do this with all the different sins that are out there. The world is trying to redefine them into sicknesses. You know, you're not a thief anymore. You're a kleptomaniac. You just can't help yourself. And God calls it a sin. They, the world calls it a disease. And we're seeing this over and over in just about every aspect where there's a, something that God calls sin, the world is trying to redefine it into a sickness. And that fits their agenda. It fits their agenda. You're, you're, you're bad, but you're, you can't help yourself. It's just, it's who you are. It's the addictions you have. It's the, the psychological issues that you have. And God says, I have a real good answer for you. It's sin. <laughs> Repent from it and turn, turn away from it. And the world tells us we can't do that kind of stuff. And Jesus hung out with those who needed to know that they were committing sin. And he did it gently. You know, I always think about the woman at the well when he goes, you know, he says, go and call your husband. And he knew, he knew her. He knew what the case was. And she says, well, I don't have one. And, and that's when he says, You're, you, you speak correctly, but in fact, you actually have five that you've, that you've uh, had. And so he revealed to her, you, you've got a problem in your life. I have the answer. I'm the living water. 
And he didn't condemn her for what it is. He just pointed out, you have sin. And this is what I say when we witness to people, our first job is to make them understand they are sinners. And there's always things in people's lives that, are, that they'll know is sin. The woman at the well knew that, that uh, divorce was not what God wanted and adultery and fornication was not permitted. But he didn't go and attack her saying, you're just a terrible stinking sinner. He goes, he just pointed out to her that she was a sinner very carefully and lovingly. And we see that Matthew was called, in spite of what most of the people would have looked at, here's a, here's a terrible sinner in his life. And got to be one of the 12. Not just follower, but one of the, one of the chief followers that went with Jesus everywhere, was sent out to, to, to share. And he was called to do this and he threw this party and we look at what is in the book of Matthew and the words that Matthew uses a lot is he fulfilled okay is one of the words he used and that's why he quotes all these different prophecies he fulfilled this prophecy he fulfilled this prophecy he fulfilled this prophecy he mentions the kingdom of of God or the kingdom 50 times in the book and the kingdom of heaven 30 times so this gives you the idea. His primary function of this book is, this is the king, he has a kingdom. All right? And so we're going to keep this in mind. This book is very Jewish. It, it refers to uh, prophecies. It refers to who he is as their king. It refers to him being the Messiah. And that is the purpose, to show, to show that to them. Uh, the book will, book will give us the lineage of Jesus, his birth, the, victor, the victor, victories of Jesus, uh, how he follows God, the triumphant entry into the Jerusalem, his trial and his death. So there's a lot of things going on. I'm going to give you two different outlines because I thought both of them were good. Uh, the first outline is real simple, seven points. It gives a complete genealogy of Jesus. All right, and that's going to be very important if we get to the genealogy today, and I think we will, we'll explain why this is important. It goes into the Sermon on the Mount. Then it shows Jesus as Messiah being ser uh, serving people and, re and his rejection. It talks about the kingdom and, and the mystery in a mysterious form. It shows that he's the Messiah's work in Judea and Jerusalem, the coming kingdom, and then the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, another simple, simple definition that I like, it's 12 points, is that it shows Jesus' beginnings. Okay, it gives a little bit of his beginning time. It shows him teaching, shows his miracles. It gives us samples of his preaching, his parables, the kingdom, the Christian, Christ's hidden things about him, Christ's life. Jesus or Christ and the religious leaders. Jesus and the future, his betrayal and his death and resurrection. So in all of this is going to be about Jesus and he puts it in a very particular order. One thing when I just want to point out when you're reading the Gospels is that they're not always telling the story in chronological order. <laughs> okay, Especially this book. Matthew has grouped his, his sections in a topic form. So something to be remembering as you get it. This is why when they try to do a harmony of the Gospels, they try to match all four Gospels. Sometimes they have trouble because they're not 
in order and you, you read into the book or in the beginning of the book and you kind of bounce around and it's done because it's not always in chronological order in the story. So keep that in mind. He does start with the beginning, but he groups all the teachings in ways that he wants to present them, just as any author would. Uh, there, are, there are biographies that are done this way, where they give you the beginning of their life and the end of life, and then they group the rest of their life around series of activities that go on in their life. So not all biographies follow that suit. So just keep that in mind. It's not, not unusual. It's not uncommon for it to be out of chronological order. And uh, so we're going to look at the book of Matthew, starting in chapter 1. And everybody loves it when I get to these genealogies because they get to read all these names <laughs> that are hard to read. And I do want to mention on this uh, genealogy, if you start trying to match these, this genealogy up to the Hebrew genealogies in, in, in Chronicles uh, and in Genesis, you have to realize that Matthew is quoting from the Septuagint and the spellings are a little different. So you have to really track and, and figure out the spelling deviations. And Matthew's quotes are all, almost all from the Septuagint, so they're slightly different than what you will read in a Hebrew translation. Does everybody know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. It was written around uh, 400 BC, give or take three, 400 BC. Uh, it got its name Septuagint because there were supposedly 70 uh, experts that, that uh, translated it. Septa, which means seven, 70. Huh? Greek version of the Old Testament. And uh, so, and in Jesus' day, that's what most people were using because many of the Jews in Jesus' day did not speak Hebrew uh, because they had been a conquered nation for, for several hundred years. And at that time, they were under Rome, and before that, they were under the Greek Empire. And Greek was a language, really became the lingua franca, or the, the, the language of the people. And it stayed during the Roman days, even though the aristocrats in Rome spoke Latin, and they used that for a lot of the legal documents. The day-to-day -day language that people spoke was in the, in the public market would have been Greek, and then they would have also spoken more of the Aramaic languages in his day. So many people did not speak Hebrew. The, the scholars would be able to speak and read Hebrew, uh, but not the average everyday citizen. They might have been able to read it because they would have gone to some school to teach them how to read, but it wasn't a language that they used in day-to-day -day conversation. And, and for many of the people that Jesus called to be his disciples, they were businessmen. They would have operated in the world of Greek for, for commerce. And, the, and the word, they, what they called the Greek at that day was Koine Greek or Common Greek. And it wasn't even the full Greek. It was a small subset. And most of the New Testament uses that small subset of Greek when it was written. So just a little bit of history so you kind of know what's going on. Because a lot of people will point out, well, those verses aren't the same as what's in the Hebrew Bible. Of course, they're not the same in the Hebrew Bible because they weren't quoting from the Hebrew Bible. A lot of Paul's quotes, and Paul kind of bounces back and, be, back and forth between quoting from Hebrew or Greek, but because he was writing in the Greek language for the most part, he just quoted the Septuagint mostly and then put the Hebrew <laughs> meanings on those words. 
So just so you know, if anybody ever goes, well, why aren't these quoted right? Well, they are quoted right when you go to the right Bible to, <laughs> to check the quotes. Uh, probably more than you ever wanted to know about <laughs> language. But this is something that has been, while we're on that, you know, the translation of the Bible has been something that's been going on for a long time. All the way back to the Greeks translating the Old Testament into, into a Septuagint ver version, which was appealing to those who were what's called Hellenized, which means they were Jews that were following Greek thinking and pretty much acted Greek more than Jewish. And we see that, you'll see that references every, especially in Acts, where the, Helen, the Hellenized or the Hellenized Jews are, you know, are mentioned. They're talking about Jews who are be more Greek than they were Jewish and, or had been Greeks and became Jews that still thought as Greeks. And so we bring this in because there's great controversy in our day and age as there's new, more and more English Bibles being translated. And everybody wants to say, well, this one's good, this one's bad. And it's very important that we want to be careful that I've always said that the, and it's not original for me, that the version, of, the best version of the Bible is the one you're going to read. Okay, you could have the best translated version of the Bible, but if you don't read it, it doesn't do you a bit of good. Now, if you are reading a very poor translation of the Bible, and there are some that are very poor you know, out there, God will convict you at some point in your study that you need to get into a different Bible. And this is something I've seen over and over. Uh, many of the people that were saved during the Jesus era, the, eight, the, the 60s and 70s, many of them got saved by the good news for modern man, which wasn't even a translation. It was a paraphrase, and it was a very poor paraphrase, but it had the gospel in it. And very quickly, when they would be studying, they would go, well, I need something more. I need something more in depth as they listened to their teachers and said, these teachers aren't saying the same thing in my book, and they would get a better Bible. This will happen to people. If they have a poor translation they're reading, at least they're reading something about God, and they will grow into something else. I read the King James. I think it's one of the best versions out there. There's one that's a little more accurate, but I don't like reading it, so I don't use it. Uh, because it is a literal word-for-word -word translation of the Bible. And instead of making a sentence like, he ran away, it would be, ran away he. <laughs> because it would use the, exactly use the Greek uh, format of the sentence, which from an English thinker, you know, you would understand ran, ran away he. You could, you could understand what that word, that sentence means. But you have to sit there and think about it for a moment. What exactly are you, you know, what exactly are we saying here? Because... In English, we normally put subject, verb, predicate. So, and when you read the Greek, it can be all scattered and everything else. And this is true in many languages that they sometimes do this. German likes to put the verb at the end of the sentence in many cases, uh, which is very hard for English readers because you're reading uh, subject, predicate, verb. <laughs> we want to just look at when we look at this, translation is probably the hardest thing that anybody can ever do with the scriptures, or any translation for that matter. If, you ever, if anybody knows multiple languages, sometimes it's very difficult to try to figure out how do I want to tra translate this, this sentence. Take a sentence for us as Americans. He, he's as red, red as a lobster. Okay, 
we know that that means that they're sunburned. <laughs> you know, how do you translate that? If you translate it literally into some language, it may not mean anything. And we want to understand, so usually they would say he's very sunburnt, you know, because they may not understand that lobster, red as a lobster means sunburnt, because uh, it's a figure of speech. When Jesus answered to Peter, you know, when G Peter said, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus' answer back to him was, no, I say not seven times, but 70 times seven. He wasn't saying forgive him 490 times and stop. He was saying it was an, an idiom that said, just keep forgiving them. All right. He wasn't saying count to 490 and then you can stop and give them what they deserve. That's not what he was saying, you know, but people have tried to say, well, I got to beware, you get to that 491st time. And, you know, but that's not what Jesus was saying. So I don't know how I got on translations, but it's been something that's been talked to a lot to me lately. So, but we want to be careful because there are some bad translations. And the greatest thing for us to do is if you really want to be reading the right translation, learn Greek and Hebrew. Don't get yourself wrapped up in these big discussions with people about what you know, you're using the wrong Bible or the right Bible, or if you're using the wrong Bible and you are a Christian, God will tell you that you're using the wrong Bible. It, it won't take you long for the Holy Spirit to kind of lead you into something else. You'll, all, you'll know that when I read out loud, I'm usually taking away all those old English words anyway, so it's because I want it to be understood. And this is part of the problem that when I read in the King James, it's written in 1611, English. Many of the words have changed. Many of the spellings have changed. And even when I meet somebody who says, I have to be reading the King James Bible, I'm ask, I'll ask them, which version of the King James do you want me to read? Because if you read the original, it reads like German. All the THs have, have an S in there, and there's a lot of E's at the end of the words, and there's all kinds of really very hard to read words. And it has been translated and changed over the years to make it easier for us in this modern day to read. If you're one of those who get wrapped up in the right version, give people the grace to, to follow it. If, you, if you're reading a different version, I'm not going to ever criticize that. It's not, a, not something I'm going to bother with. And there are paraphrases, which are fun to read, but I would never be teaching or studying from a paraphrase. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to read first uh, 17 verses. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his, and his brethren. And Judah begat Pharaoh and, and Zarah of, of Tamar. And Pharaoh begat Esron, and Esron begat Amram. And Amram begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Nasah. Nea's son, and Nea's son begat Sal Salman, and Salman begat Boaz of, of, of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed, Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David be the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah, and Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abai and Abiai begat Asa, and Asa begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat 
Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josiah, and Josiah begat Jeconias and his brethren about, that, about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeho Jehoiakimus and begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zorobabel, and Zorobabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Elakim, and Elakim begat Azar, and Azar begat Sadak, and Sadak begat Akim, and Akim begat Eliud, and Eliud begat Eli. Eliezer and Eliezer begat Matthan, and Matthan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations." So, after having read all those names, which are very hard because they're not the names I'm used to because I'm used to them in Hebrew. <laughs> so, we're going to look at this. This line of, day of Jesus is through the line of Jacob, of Joseph. All right? In Luke, we read a, a, a genealogy, and it is the line of Mary. All right? So, we have two different lines, and... Jesus, either line is a royal line. They're both royal lines. And you may not recognize these names, but we're going to kind of point out these, that Joseph was of the royal line of David, and so is Mary, both of them. And Mary is actually his mother, so he traces his line through David, through Mary, and he traces in, through her line to the fourth son uh, of uh, Bathsheba, Nathan is the line that Mary comes through. So she's in the royal line, but not of the, of the king line. All right? Jacob, who is considered his father by the world standards, is, his, is the royal line that he gets to come from. And you probably didn't recognize those names in this form, and we'll change some of them. You might have recognized some of them. But he came through his stepfather, uh, line being royal and being totally royal. He is in the line of the king. Why this is important, this genealogy is very important because to be a king, you have to prove your lineage. Okay? You can't just walk up and say, well, I, I'm the prince. I deserve to be in the castle. Okay? You would have to be able to say, this is my father. Who is this? this is my father. And you have to follow your line down the road. And in places where there is royalty still today, you will hear somebody being referred to, this is so-and-so, they're 17th in line for the, for, the, for the throne, or they're 829th in line for the throne because they're so far removed. Or, you know, they're, they're the crown prince, they're the, they're the number one next in line, okay? This was important to be put down on paper by Matthew, because he is tracing that Jesus has the right to be called the king. All right? He is tracing his lineage. Why is this important? There is nobody in the world right now that can prove their lineage to David. The reason being, the lineage records were kept in the temple of Jerusalem. 
And in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed that temple and they did not have time to remove the records from the temple. So the genealogical records have been destroyed. There is nobody in this day that can actually prove that they are a descendant of David. Now, one of the things that the Jews are doing, the Jews are very active in, in DNA research and they're one of the reasons DNA uh, testing has become so big because they have two groups of people they want to be able to, uh, to identify. Well, actually three with the king, if they want to follow the kingly route, but they're not real. The most important one for them to understand is who are Levites? Why do they want to find Levites? Because Levites are the one that serve in the temple. And you cannot serve in the temple without being a Levite. So they want to be able to prove who are the Levites. The second one that's very important to them, who are the sons of Aaron? Because they're the ones that will be able to make the sacrifices. So they have pushed very hard on DNA research to try to be able to find, not, you know, in the process of finding those, they're also trying to find the other, the other um, tribes as well. But their main concern were Levites and Aaron's children. And if they could find David's children, it wouldn't hurt, you know, if they ever want to have a kingdom, which I don't think they want to have a kingdom again, but they might not be too bad. They'd like to know who David's children are, but they would not have this strong a linkage that they have here because they're not going to know which son within that you came from. So this is very important because Matthew proved Jesus' right to be the Messiah. Because this is what he did. He went this. When he wrote this, the genealogies were still available to the people. And the Jews in that day were very much into genealogies. Who is your father? How, what is your right to be? Whatever it is that you're, they're, 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 you're claiming to be. In, in Titus, we're told, they, were, they were told, you know, Paul told him, don't give yourself over to endless genealogies and, and Jewish mytho you know, fables because he knew how much they were into all of these genealogies. And, you know, oh, I am so-and-so because this is my father who, you know, and they go back until they can get back and say how important they are because of what family they're in. And we see this even a little bit, to, you know, in some places today, but not, especially not in America where we don't have this royal royal families, but you know, if you get somebody who's fairly famous and you trace back, you know, uh, I'm so-and-so and this is my, you know, and they go back only three or four generations in our case usually. But if you're in the royal family, you're going back because you need to go back and say, how close am I to the throne? And we're gonna look at a couple of just key points in this genealogy. First, first off, he goes back to Abraham. And he stops at Abraham. Why would he stop at Abraham? Because in, in, because if you look at Luke, he goes all, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And it says, whose father was, you know, who was the son of God. <laughs> okay. But Luke, again, was writing to Greeks who did not know the history of the people. Matthew is writing to the Jews, and he knows all he's got to go back to Abraham because Abraham's who's important to them. And they know that from Abraham, you can go, you know, how they go back, to, I'll go back all the way to Adam. They, they, the Jews will fully understand that. The other point is when you get to verse 17, he points this into a very neat little package. He says, from Abraham to David is 14 generations. 
from David to the captivity is 14 generations, and from, four, and from, from the captivity to Jesus is 14 generations. If he tried to go back all the way to Adam, it wouldn't fit into his little, little pattern because there's like 19 or 20 generations from Abraham back to, to, to Adam. So it doesn't fit in the statement that he's going to make here. And he's trying to show that God is the one that has put everything together and it's in this nice little neat package. And only God could have done this 14, 14, 14. And there's, so, so he goes only back to Abraham. And then he gets into Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brothers. And it says Judas here, but it is Judah. The, the kingly line of, of uh, Abraham's children. And then it says here, very interesting saying, and Judah beget Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And then it goes, Perez beget Esram. So the question I've got for people is, does anybody know who Tamar is? We're going to go back into history a little bit here. We're going to go back to Genesis 38. She's the woman that spout, or, uh, tough guy went after? Nope. Nope. That, that uh, was, uh, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, yeah. but I know who you're talking about. In Genesis 38, we have a little bit of a uh, story here that is kind of an interesting thing because we're going to find out that Pharaoh's in this line, his father and his grandfather are both Judah. <laughs> okay, because there was a little bit of a, not quite incest because it was with his daughter-in-law, not his, not his uh, re re relative. But in starting at verse 1, And it came to pass in the time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned to a, into a certain Adolamite whose name was Hiram, <laughs> And Judah saw there the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shula. And he took her and went into her, and she conceived and bare a son, and he called his name Ur. And she conceived again and bare a son, and he called his name Onan. And she yet again conceived and bare a son, and, name, and his name was Shelah. And he was at Sherzib when she bare him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. This is who we're talking about, Tamar here. And Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to your brother. And this was a common practice in there that you were not going to let the son's line end with no children. You're, and uh, it was actually formalized in the book of Exodus that God said that if your son died or your, your brother you know, died and he did not have a male heir, the next child in line would marry that, per, that woman and the first child would belong, would belong to his son's name or his brother's name. Not son's name, but his brother's name. So Judah goes into Onar and he says, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to your brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass that when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it on the ground lest that he should give seed to his brother. In other words, he did not finish the job with her. And the thing that he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he slew him. 
Okay? He did not do his duty to the family, and God said, okay, I'm going to kill you as well. So Judah has now lost two sons. And then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow at your father's house until Shelah, my son, is grown. And for he said, lest preadventure he die also, and his brother, as his brethren did, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So basically, Judah is saying, go dwell at your dad's house until this last son gets older, and he has no intention, as this states, of giving Tamar his last son. And part of this is probably fearful that Tamar's <laughs> not a very good wife or something. Something's, you know, God says it's because they're doing evil, but he's probably looking at it and saying, well, she's the culprit. <laughs> okay? And... Um, Verse 12, and in the process of time, the daughter of Shula, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted and went in into his sheep shearers in Timnath, and his friend Hiram, the Adulamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law goes up to Timnath to shear his sheep. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way to Timnath. And she sat and she saw this, that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. All right, so she's been waiting patiently for this young, young boy to grow up and become, become his wife, and Judah does not call her back. And so, and verse 5, when Judah, no, let's see, for she was not given unto him. When, when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot because she had covered her face, and he turned unto her and said, Go, I pray you, let me come in unto you, for he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in unto me? And he said, I will give you a kid from the flock. And she said, Will you, will you also give me a pledge till you send it? And he said, What pledge will you have? And she said, Your signet and your bracelets and your staff, which is in your hand. And he gave it to her, and she came into her, and she conceived by him. Okay, so he gives him her, her ring, bracelets, and a staff. And he goes away. And we're not going to read the rest of the story. But he sends the, the goat from the flock to her by the hand of the Adulamite. And he goes, and they go, where is she? Where's the harlot? And they goes, there's not been a harlot here. And, and she's going to go. And then later on, she's going to get pregnant, as it said. And she's going to start showing. And Judah is going to want to, you know, sees this as his opportunity to have her killed as an adulteress. And then she goes, well... You judge, you judge this and you say, I'm, I'm pregnant by the person who has these, and she hands over his possessions. And he realizes that he has done wrong, but she ends up having twins, and they're giving over as Perez's, son, uh, uh, Perez's sons, and Jacob raises the sons, but doesn't ever go into her again. So it's a quite an interesting story, but it's one of these things that there's some very interesting characters in the line of Jesus. And part of what I want to bring out of the reasons for bringing out these characters is God's grace. How many people does God use that are thrown through his grace? They, Tamar does not deserve to be in the line of Christ if you were to look at it as somebody good. And yet, there she is. Another one that's in here is Rahab. And if you know who Rahab is, she was the harlot that hid the spies as they entered into the promised land, she ends up getting married to uh, one of the individuals in, in the book of Joshua, and she's in this line. 
Again, a person who you would not think. You know, if you would think about the line that Jesus would pick, the Son of God would pick, you know, if you were to do it in human thought problems, you're going, you'd pick the best people in each generation. And yet, he picks these people that seem to have no right to be in his lineage, and it shows his grace. And I, we should take comfort in that kind of thing because most of us are not in the cream of the crop that deserves to be in the top of the line. We are all sinners that don't deserve to be used, and yet God will use us. In verse 5, it says, Salam beget Boaz of of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Now we know the story of Ruth, right? We have uh, her family goes out. They, she is a Moabitist. Okay? And a Moabitist is not a Jew, obviously. A Moabitist comes from Lot and his eldest daughter. And if you remember the story of Lot after Sodom and Gomorrah and, the, and was destroyed and they fled up to the mountains and, and Lot, Lot's wife was killed, he refused to leave the mountains. He was so afraid. And if you recall the story, and if you want to read the story, it's in, uh, in Genesis. But we see his daughter saying, our father's staying up here. We don't even have a chance to get married. We're, we're becoming old maids. And if you remember the story, they got him drunk. The oldest daughter went in and laid down with him, got pregnant. Then the next night they got him drunk again, and, this, and the younger daughter got pregnant. And the eldest daughter gave birth to Moab, the people of Moab. And the younger daughter gave birth to the Ammonites. And you're going to read about them all through the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, God told them, you are not to destroy the Moabites or the Ammonites because they are family quite convoluted family, but they were family because they were related to Abraham. But they are going to be a thorn in the side of Israel probably already to, the, to this day. But Ruth is a Moabite, and she is brought into the line of Jesus as well. And the story of Ruth, you know the story of Ruth, I hope, you know, but she is somebody who chooses to follow God. Naomi tries to send her away when she goes back home and she says, no, I've chosen you. You're my mother and your God is my God. And she goes back and she ends up marrying Boaz and Boaz is a big, great picture of the kinsman redeemer of Jesus. And they give birth to, to Jesse who then gives birth to David. So we have another very interesting person who is not a Jew in the line of Jesus. Tamar was a Canaanite. Was a, was a, her mother was Canaanite and was married into this. So we have all these different people that are in this line. And then, of course, we get to Solomon. And Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. And that whole affair came from that adulterous affair for David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And then Solomon was born. All right? And so, again, we see Bathsheba being brought into this line. David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, in the line of David, in the line of Jesus. Very interesting people that God uses so that he can show us his grace and his mercy. And I love this when we, you know, I love, I love doing the genealogies because they're so much fun to point things out that people don't look at in genealogies. 
The son of Solomon that, that they next go is Rehoboam, which I'm going to give it the Hebrew pronunciation, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the next king of Israel after Solomon, and that is the king that the, that the nation split under. And if you read in, in uh, 1 Kings 17 through 19, you'll read how he took over and how the people went, your father Solomon has been taxing us to death in, in, in a very simple story. You know, would you please you know, reduce our taxes? And he, Rehoboam went to the, his father's uh, advisors and they said, yeah, that would be a pretty good idea. You can, if you cut their taxes, they will, they will really like you, you know, respect you and honor you. And then, he, and then Rehoboam went to his dumb, dumb friends that had no, no life, not life learning and they go, no, you just tell them that you think my father was bad. You know, my, his, his waist, my, 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 my finger will be like his waist. In other words, I'm going to make things really hard on you. And, ten, and at that time, ten kingdoms split off, and Jeroboam became the king of the, of the north, and, and Rehoboam became the king in the south. And um, from Rehoboam, we see various names. Asa was a very bad king. Jehoshaphat was a good king. Uh, We've got, uh, let's see, Joram. Uh, we've got uh, Ozias, which is uh, Isaiah 6. I don't remember his name in Hebrew. <laughs> Uzziah. <laughs> uh, these are... If you look at this list of names, this is the list of the kings of Judah. This really kind of makes you wonder. Joseph's lineage is in the prime list of the kings. Okay? Because he goes through Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, and all the way to Jehoiakim, who is the one that was the king when they went into captivity. So... Joseph's line is that he is literally of the royal line. Now, he is, Joseph is a carpenter, so he's, you know, by the time we get to Jesus' birth, he's way down the list of crown princes. But he is of that line that is literally the line that takes the throne. I just want to bring that out because of the, the line we're following here is that royal line. And this is what Matthew is trying to point out that Jesus through his stepfather which would have brought him back into the into the line is of royal birth on a human side not just the side that he's God is his father and he is going to be king anyway so I just wanted to bring all of this out as we look at this and then we get down to verse 16 and Jacob bare Joseph the husband of Mary who was born of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And you look at how he changes the way he phrases this. Each one was so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. When he gets to this last statement, and it says, Jacob begat Joseph, that's the last begat that he uses in the statement here. And then he goes, who's the husband of Mary, and the only times he brought in the women was when they were kind of important to bring out, the grace of Jesus, you know, Rahab, uh, Ruth, Tamar. And he gets to this one, the husband of Mary. Like, 
All of a sudden, who is Mary? I mean, he doesn't really explain this, but he said, this is who. And then it says, of whom was born Jesus. And the of whom is not Joseph. It is Mary. He's really affirming the virgin birth in this statement. Without talking about it at this point, he's already bringing in the virgin birth. Joseph was married to Mary, and, and Mary is, gave birth to Jesus. If he had followed suit trying to say that Joseph was the father, he would have said, Joseph begat Jesus. So this is a very important change in this genealogical list. He is very clearly saying Joseph's only the stepfather in our, in our terminology. He got married to Mary, who had a child from somebody else. So he's the stepchild of Joseph. But a stepchild is put in those same lines with with the kingly lines. And then it says, was born Jesus. And the name for Je Jesus in, in Hebrew is, is uh, Yahshua, Yeshua, which means uh, Jehovah is salvation. So Jesus' name in, in Hebrew is God saves. <laughs> All right? Or God's means of saving salvation. So very interesting when we look at this, how... Joseph, uh, Matthew is showing his lineage. He's, his proof was that this is the king. Father to son, father to son, father to son for the king. And that, so he's tracing it back and saying, he ha this is his right to be king. And this is, again, even in our day and age, if somebody wants to be king, they have to be able to prove their, their lineage, their genealogy, their heredry, if you want to, whatever term you want to use. You have to prove who, who, who's your father and you know, why is it important and you know, why, why do you deserve to do this. And this is what Matthew has done here. This is the king. I'm going to show you the king. And this is the proof that he's king. And we want to be able to look at this. And, and again, we see in there how much God's grace and mercy is in, in, this, in this line. And you also look at how many bad kings are in this line. Okay, Manasseh. Asa, uh, Asa uh, uh, let's see, Ammon, you know, all these guys that were bad kings in Judah are in the line of Jesus. And again, if you would think, if God was wanting to really pick the perfect line, none of these guys, many, most of this line would not be in here because it would just not be what you want to see. And God says, here it is. I have chosen an imperfect line for the, son, for, my, for the son that I'm giving birth to to be born of. And even if you look at Mary's, those guys aren't all that great either. <laughs> okay? So very important that God looks at. And, and this is really what's important. God uses people who don't deserve to be used for his glory. And I love that because that means... Any one of us can be used by God because we, none of us deserve to be used by God because we're all sinners that deserve punishment. So none of us deserve that. Some don't deserve it more than others possibly from a human point of view, but God still uses those who don't deserve to be used because of his grace and his mercy, and it is him that does the choosing, not us. And we want to be very careful. If you ever have this idea of looking at somebody and saying, well, I don't know how God could ever use them. They're probably exactly who God's going to use when he gets hold of them. 
because God uses those who don't deserve to be used. And then to make that point, look at his disciples. He picked, he picked Matthew, tax collector, hated by the people. He took Peter. You know, Peter was very impetuous. You know, Peter would be, you know, it's good that Peter's in there because most of us can see some of our own, own life in Peter. Peter was, I'm going to do something first and then I'll engage my brain sometime when I'm down the road. <laughs> How many of us do that all the time? <laughs> now, I'm going to go do this, God. Uh, well, gee, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I sh maybe I should have thought for a moment. You know, that's the kind of man Peter was. A mountain of transfiguration. I love the way it's phrased. And Peter said, because he did not know what to say, most people would say, okay, Peter, you should have shut up. But because he didn't know what to say, he says, shall we build booze for you? <laughs> Jesus also knew that he would apply that to Oh, and that's what he wanted. I mean, he wanted somebody who wasn't perfect. He wanted somebody who was willing to move first. Peter says, you know, if, you're God, if you are Jesus, tell me to come out there and walk on the water. And he walked on the water. You know, he did great things, too, because he was willing to step out in faith and then think later. And so God, <laughs> Yeah. But we see this all the time that God uses the most unlikely people to do great things. Somebody like Martin Luther, being raised to be a Catholic priest from an obscure family on an obscure little town in a very small, obscure Catholic university, Starts reading the Bible for, to prepare for a debate that he's going to have, which was an un, unheard of things, because in their day, at that time and time, the priest really did not read the Bible. And he comes up with a whole bunch of questions that he wants answered. He wants to debate because he read the Bible. And he ends up starting the Reformation, the Protestant re movement. He had no intention of starting that movement. It was just the reaction that he got when he raised up questions to the Pope and, and saying, hey, this is what the Bible says, but you're saying this. You're teaching us this, but this is what the Bible says. Then he got excommunicated and, and had a whole series of events where he got protected, where most people, when they were excommunicated, were also lost their life. Okay, And yet he was protected by a prince who decided to protect him because he was also not wanting to follow the restrictions that were being put on him. And God used this man with no significance whatsoever and started the Reformation. And over the history of God's work, he takes people who have no reason to be used. Gideon. Gideon is hiding in the wine vat, threshing the wheat, because he's afraid of the Chaldeans that are taking away everything that they're growing. And the angel comes to him and greets him and says, Gideon, you, you mighty man of valor. <laughs> okay, He was anything but a mighty man of valor at that moment. He was trembling for his life in a, in a wine vat, trying to get some uh, food for his family. This is what God has done many times. We look at David, the youngest child of Jesse. So insignificant in the family that when Samuel comes and says, I'm here to anoint your, one of your families, let me see him. 
Jesse doesn't even think to call David into the family meeting. David is out there in the middle of nowhere. He's the youngest son. We don't even remember him. He's out on the field all the time with those sheep. And Samuel asks him, well, do you have any other, any other children? He goes, uh, yeah, well, there is David. He's out tending the sheep. Well, get him out here. So often God chooses the least to do the greatest. Why does he choose the least? Because he wants to be the one that gets the glory. If he takes the great, the great side is to say, well, look what I have done. The least look at it and say, I didn't deserve any of this. Look what God has made through me and what he's done through his strength. And this is what this verse says. God uses the least and has great merciful activity from it. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come before you. We ask that you lead and guide us as we go out. Show us the people that we're to talk to and, and lead us. Lord, we lift up the parade this in two weeks and for the preparation of the parade with the bags this, this coming Saturday and let the job be done quickly. And, and Lord, even now, start preparing the hearts that are going to receive these tracts and these Bibles and the information about the church, that you will greatly use it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.